When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply why we're in bad relationships, why we're struggling to leave. There's always a reason and there's always an unconscious force, often coming from our childhood, that is stopping us from changing. Those nine months, they can actually impact how your life is going to be from when you're in the womb. It's actually essential to understand your attachment system and really more broadly your relationship with your parents and how that is being triggered in your present relationships in order to unpick your responses. We repeat what we experience if we don't process it. So this is why people will choose partners, for example, who are hurting them in the same way. So if you go for someone emotionally unavailable who doesn't want to engage with you emotionally or who is avoidant, chances are you would have had a parent who wasn't able to engage with you emotionally. So it's worth thinking about how that might be showing up now as an adult. And do you think you can change on your pathways? Do you think you can change who you are as a person? Because... Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of A Millennial Mind. If you're struggling in any of your relationships, whether that's in your romantic relationships, your friendships, or even with your family, this episode is going to be great for you. So get your notepads out, make sure you're writing down all of the notes, because we're going to be talking around attachment styles. This episode has been so eye-opening for me, and if it's eye-opening for you, I'd be so grateful if you could press the follow, like, and subscribe button, and if you really liked it, you could rate the podcast now as well. Thank you so much for all of your support. You have no idea how much it means to me. Let's get into the episode. Annie, welcome to Millennial Mind. Thank you. Happy to be here. I'm really happy to have you on this podcast. I feel that we've already had a long conversation where I've asked you and so many different things about my life and it's already been really <laughs> enlightening, but your book, The Pocket Therapist, is amazing and I'm really excited to dive deeper in it today. Although I don't think we'll have time to cover every single topic. There's a lot a lot of topics in there. We should do a podcast on each chapter. On each you chapter. have a whole series. Absolutely. But for people who don't know who you are, tell me a little bit about yourself. Uh, yeah, so I'm Annie Zimmerman or Your Pocket Therapist um, on social media. Um, and I post content about um, psychology, specifically focused on relationships, um, using kind of like a deeper psychotherapeutic understanding and applying that to like modern problems that we're having um, so a lot about what I've talked about is about family dynamics and how our past shows up in the present um, and how we can use our awareness of the past and our childhood to understand um, what's happening in our lives right now where we're struggling in our relationships and that's really the focus of my content and the focus of the book. So you talk a lot around family dynamics and your past how early on can we trace back so for example if I'm having a problem problem now could that trace back to me being in the womb, for example? Absolutely, yeah. Really? So if you think about as you develop as a child, the the time that you grow the most is, I guess, from the womb when you're nothing just cells to the age of like two. That's when your brain grows the most. Um, and that means that that's when you're the most sponge-like. So by the time you get to adulthood, your brain is mostly developed. And of course, our experiences still have an impact on us, um, but it's almost like we're fully cooked. Whereas when we're still cooking um, and when we come out um, from zero to two, our environment has a huge impact on us, which is difficult for something like therapy because we can't really remember what happened to us yeah. from zero to two, um, which is why it can be really helpful to like talk to your parents about those really early years or try to understand what it might have been like um, to 
have an understanding of how your environment impacted you because actually those really early years are the things that shape things like attachment style the most. Um, how yeah. interesting. So I want to come on to attachment style. I'm really excited to talk about that. But I just want to pick up on what you said around the womb. So from the, the time where you're conceived till by the time you've you know, been born, those nine months, they can actually impact how your life is going to be from when you're in the womb. Yeah, there's a lot of research showing that kind of in utero, stresses that the mum's having, things that are going on, um, impact the how the child's development afterwards, impact your emotional health. Uh, not to put pressures on mothers who are pregnant, obviously, yeah. there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot that you can't really control. Um, but having a really stressful life when you're pregnant um, can impact the child. Absolutely. And, you know, we know things like smoking and drinking and addiction but it's the same for emotional input wow of course yeah you're right we know we know that smoking if you drink or any of those things that that can impact the child but of course if you're stressed if you're anxious if you're worried mm -hmm. that would yeah it makes so much sense so you've just touched upon attachment styles and i'm very excited to talk about it because i'm recently discovering what they are so what is an attachment style and how do we understand what our attachment style is mm -hmm. so attachment style um it's really about survival. So babies are really helpless when they're first born. Um, I actually read Sapiens um, and it's about, it, it talks about how to evolve. Um, babies basically had to come out when their heads hadn't grown too big because the mothers would die in childbirth. So we, we actually come out too early compared to other mammals, um, which means that we are, we, you know, other mammals, if you think about like a cow, a calf when it's born, within like, a few hours it's standing and it's eating grass and it's kind of independent whereas babies stay completely dependent upon their parents um for for many years as they grow and that means that to survive as a baby you have to secure the attachment to your parent or your caregiver because they are responsible for keeping you alive um so attachment is really essential um to feel safe and to feel like you're not going to die at all times when you're a baby. So that means that babies are amazingly adapted to being cute, having big eyes, looking, laughing, doing things that are going to make sure that the parent is interested in keeping their child alive. Um, and that means that from quite early on, babies are really focused on how to make sure that their parents are paying them positive attention. Um, and that's where our attachment styles development develop, which is basically where you learn different responses to make sure that your parents are, um, to make sure your attachment is secure. Um, so the goal is for, as a baby, your parents to show you that love. Yeah, exactly. And it, wow. you know, surviving, they need food, they need water, they need sleep, they need, but they also need cuddles they also need um you know love and warmth and that that security so um babies will develop really quickly ways of making sure that their parents are focused on them and this is the different attach how the different attachment styles develop so um the first one is secure which is where your parents are, are pretty much present um emotionally and physically um and the baby learns okay i don't really have to do much to make sure mum or dad or whoever is there and they develop a real sense of confidence in the world mm -hmm. that like the people who love me are going to be there for me and they then carry that expectation as they grow into adults into their other relationships expecting people to show up for them having a, a relatively positive outlook on the world um, because they were not let down terribly but if your parent is isn't always there so they're inconsistent um, if sometimes they're loving and warm and other times they're they're not there, you know, maybe mum goes back to work really early, for example, or maybe sometimes 
you're just really anxious and stressed and not present or you're shut down emotionally the baby picks up on this and that is the biggest stress for a baby is to um to not be met when they're crying for example um so that's where anxious attachment develops so the baby will ramp up their responses of crying of clinging of trying to get that attention and then they learn that the more they cry the more that they are not okay the more attention that they get mm-hmm. because that like demands the parent to focus on them and to be there um they then carry that it's an adaptation really they carry the adaptation into adult romantic or any other relationship of okay i'm not getting attention i'm gonna cry i'm gonna cling i'm gonna send you know 100 messages to the person who's not replying to me that's that's that anxiety adaptation of like um how can i make sure that someone is responding to me and then if that doesn't work as a baby so if you're crying and the the parent still isn't there still is emotionally disengaged or physically not there um the baby essentially gives up crying and that becomes avoidant attachment so it becomes too disappointing to cry and to not be responded to that the baby just learns okay well no one's coming so i'm not crying anymore and that's a typically avoidant attachment so they learn to regulate not regulate themselves but they learn to be hyper independent like i don't need anyone I don't cry. And it's really distressing if you see a baby of a really young age just like not fussed about things. It's like you should, you know, people always say, oh, they were a happy baby. They never cried. Um, But actually, why are they not crying? Why aren't they expecting their caregivers to respond to them when they cry? That's more of a potential problem, actually, if the baby's learnt very early. I don't need anyone. I'm not going to show that I'm upset. Um, And that's, that's where you become an adult avoidant. So you just... I don't need anyone. I'm fine. I don't have emotions. You might actually be really threatened when someone asks you how you're feeling or tries to get close to you because for you, that's like, oh, I can't trust you. You know, no one showed up for me then. I'm not going to dare open up to you now. That is so eye-opening about the baby thing and being happy because I've said that many times. Oh, my gosh, they're so happy. Oh, my gosh, she's so happy. Never thought about it like that. But as you you were talking about the difference between anxious and avoidant, I'm not a mother – But it reminded me of people talking about the sleep method where you basically, Mm. when you're putting your child to bed, I don't know what it's called, but you either let them cry it out and then they'll eventually fall asleep or you coddle them. Now, some people, and I have a lot of friends and family members who are mothers. Now, some people are very strong on the fact that if their baby cries, they are there to comfort that baby and not abandon them. And some people are very much, on the other hand, thinking, well, you're, you're mollycoddling them mm. and they'll learn to adapt and you can't always be there for them. And it's all about, you know, letting them learn for themselves. Isn't that really linked to anxious and avoidant? I think so. Yeah. I mean, there's the whole generation of parents who just oh, let them cry. Yeah. Um, and I, I mean, I, I also am not a parent, so I don't want to comment on, on yeah. how to parent. Um, but... There's an argument for always being present, but there's also an argument for building resilience. I actually talk about this in the book with my favourite psychoanalyst called Donald Winnicott. He was like, a child has to be able to tolerate a level of discomfort and then they learn to regulate themselves. Okay. So leaving a baby to cry for, you know, for five minutes and then they learn, okay, I can soothe myself. The baby is being frustrated and that's okay. We're teaching the baby that 
someone's not always going to be there and sometimes you can do something for yourself but if that goes on too long and then nobody comes that's where you get the avoidant attachment of someone just crying and crying and not being responded to so I think there's probably a sweet spot of not always coming as soon as your child makes any sound because that is maybe overbearing and they'll pick up on your anxiety um, but also being generally there for your child when they're upset. How interesting. Okay, so what you're saying is that about, we're not going to state times, but it makes sense of, they don't just naturally become avoidant if you allow them to self-soothe or you allow them to regulate their emotions, right? Like they Mm. can learn to to do that because that's why I'm finding it difficult to distinguish. I think babies learn to regulate based on their parents soothing them. So if when you're crying mum or dad comes and soothes them they'll eventually learn to internalize that and learn to soothe themselves but if from day one you're like you soothe yourself the baby never learns how because they're not shown how wow whereas if you have like a parent with a regulated nervous system who's there and tender and calm they'll over time start to be able to do that for themselves okay now we talked about three different attachment styles why are they so important how do they impact us in our lives like what are the common things you see amongst those individual attachment styles and how do we relate them I guess back to our relationships Mm -hmm. so based on the different attachment responses the adaptations that you learn as a child we all have throughout our lives what people call an attachment system um, which involves an attachment alarm so when your attachment relationship is threatened the alarm goes off and you go towards your um, your your response so for an anxious person if their their separation or distance or they feel like they're being ignored their attachment alarm goes off and that is that like terrible anxiety mm. that people get when they're obsessed with someone and they can't stop talking about it and they don't know what to do and they're drafting messages and um this is in a kind of adult relationship romantic yeah. relationship um so based on how they learn as a child to make sure that their parents were interested in them um we do the same things as um in a relationship and this means that it's actually essential to understand um, your attachment system and really more broadly your relationship with your parents and how that is being triggered in your present relationships in order to unpick your responses. Um, so if you are if you have that anxiety and you recognise that as soon as someone doesn't reply to you, that attachment alarm goes off and you go into distress and you can't focus, it, where is that coming from? Because you can always externalise and blame the other person, but really mm-hmm. this is a pattern in you and a response in you and it needs you to become aware in order to be able to change it. And part of that awareness is tracking back as to where it's come from, why you develop that way of being, you know, anything unconscious that is coming up in this interaction that can actually help you to change your responses. And what's the most common thing you see in terms of anxious attachment styles with people coming to you and where they're struggling? I think, I think to be able to learn to regulate yourself because the anxious person probably wasn't soothed and wasn't regulated enough so they've never really learned how to do that for themselves so being able to hold yourself when you're in that anxious panic and when you feel like you're being rejected or abandoned and rather than I think what people do is they just react Mm. to that trigger and react to that feeling um, because it's all about control really you can't control another person's response to you so when somebody pulls away you go into control mode and you're like what can I do to get them back and so that's why we do all of the texting that's why we talk to our friends about it that's why we you know come up with all of these different solutions because we're trying to stay in control and actually holding yourself when you feel out of control and recognizing 
that you might not be able to do anything about it and that it will be okay even if you lose this person and, and tolerating it rather than reacting is the best way I think to um, not let the anxious attachment take over all of your reactions to people. So when you're talking about triggers, what are some of the triggers people have told you that have made you realise, okay, you're anxiously attached and this is what you need to do about it? Um, I guess not being able to tolerate separation. Okay. Um, is that common quite a lot? Yeah, I, th- I think that's the biggest, one of the biggest triggers of anxious attachment for sure. Of, um, you know, somebody um, doesn't reply, somebody goes away, somebody says, actually, I want to take time for myself. Why? Because separation is you know perceived as abandonment is perceived as rejection so we think oh that person's never coming back if they go away too far they're going to leave me and that is that's terrifying it's really similar to the love languages because my love languages is presence and mm. uh acts of service those are my two one two ones that are really important to me and and i used to and some sometimes still do feel that if i'm not with someone for a long period of time i don't need them anymore Mm. but it's not conscious it's very subconscious because if I haven't seen somebody for like two weeks you know my partner if I haven't seen him for two weeks I do I do feel that I'm a lot more detached and I don't want to be Mm. but I am so I would say that's more common for avoidance and like a more hyper-independent type of persona interesting um, not anxious I think I think anxious people have the fear that if I'm not in front of someone, they're going to forget about me. So therefore I need to be present and talking to you all the time and always in conversation and always seeing you. Otherwise you're going to forget about me because probably in their childhood experiences, they felt forgotten about unless they were crying a lot or making a lot of noise. Okay. Um, Or, or attention seeking in some way. Um, Whereas avoidant, I would, I would say it's more like, Oh, I don't really need people, you know, it's definitely me. (laughs) I've realized that more as I'm getting older about this it, well, again, it's not it's not conscious. It's so subconscious, and I recognise mm. it more and more as I'm learning about masculine and feminine energy. Does that come up quite a lot for you? Um, in differences in in understanding attachment style, do you think that's linked at all? Definitely. I guess the the cliche would be that um, avoidant is more masculine and anxious is more feminine. Yes, um, but that's not a blanket rule. You can definitely get avoidant women and anxious men. Um, but I I suppose it's more of a a masculine um, trope to be really independent. I don't need people. I'm not emotional. Mm. Don't talk to me about my feelings. And it's more of a feminine trope to be wanting to always be in communication and having deep conversations and talking. And But that's also uh, me. And this is why I get confused with the attachment styles because I am somebody who's very emotional. I am somebody who wants to have a lot of communication. I am somebody who would double text. and But I don't feel embarrassed about it. I would, I would triple hmm. text somebody. I wouldn't care. So sometimes I'm like, am I avoidant or am I anxious or? Well, there's actually a fourth attachment style, which is a combination of both um, called fearful avoidant um, or disorganized, which is um, this happens um, when you were afraid of a parent growing up. So your source of comfort was also a source of fear, which is for a child kind of the worst thing that you can go through because you need your parent to feel safe. And if your parent is also the, the main threat, where do you go to for comfort? And so you you attention, you you go for c- closeness, aka anxious attachment, but then you also withdraw because they're scaring you and they're threatening. So it's it's both going towards and pulling away. And that means that you can swing really easily between wanting closeness and having that anxiety of like, I need you around all the time, but actually I need to be on my own because you're not safe. 
So once we've understood our attachment style, what can we do about it? So let's start with, I guess, the anxious attachment style. Mm -hmm. If I've recognized that I'm really anxious and it's impacting my relationship because I'm really clingy and I'm starting to get insecure if they don't reply or I would just want to be with them all the time, even if I don't really like them. What is it that I can do to kind of walk away from being so anxious? Yeah, so this is a main thing I talk about in my book because I think we all love a diagnosis. We all love a label. We yeah. all like doing the quiz of what attachment style am I, but what do we actually do with that? Yeah. Um, I would say it's important, first of all, to like hold the information lightly, to not really identify with your attachment style because that almost makes it more fixed of like this is who I am as a person like no this is potentially something you do in some relationships um so not to identify too much with the label but if you do recognize that you tend towards one attachment over the other um I would say the the most important thing to do is to really reflect on your childhood and to process some of what remains unprocessed in your current relationship so if you're if you can't tolerate you know your partner not replying for a bit and that makes you really anxious that isn't actually about your partner this is about your parents um so and that's what we do in therapy is we process actually the anxiety and the fear that you felt in those really early years when you did need this person for survival um because really you know you don't need your partner for survival now you're an adult you can do it on your own so that panic that terror that we feel it's not um, reflective of actually how much we need this person obviously we don't want to lose yeah. them and that would be distressing but we would survive whereas when we were young we actually wouldn't um, so being able to process where it's come from and work through the fear the grief the you know the sadness whatever belongs to the past helps us to then show up differently in our present and then the other thing is really just awareness I think we can't stop ourselves from being triggered but we can respond to our triggers differently so if as in our example someone doesn't reply for a few hours and you start getting anxious rather than saying oh you know I should just be chill I should be I should be acting like a secure person recognize this is my anxiety this is the part of me that is scared that is coming from a very valid and vulnerable place how can I how can I parent myself in this moment how can I regulate myself how can I not immediately send 50 messages and instead take a bit of time to try and calm my nervous system, telling myself that I'm safe now. And that's really about like managing and regulating in the moment. Inner child work has been really transformative for me because mm. I did it for the first time the other day in a meditation. And I have been able to regulate myself so much more because now I can talk to myself mm. as if I'm a third person. So I've done this for a long time in terms of therapy. I'll pretend I'm in therapy. But now if I find myself feeling triggered and I feel anxious and I feel sick and I feel worried, I almost just ask myself these questions. But I, I've learned how to like hug myself and comfort mm. myself, not physically, but within my mind. And it's really changed so much for me. Do a lot of people come to you for that? I don't think they come consciously for that. But uh, I think that's part of what can happen in therapy is that you start to actually have compassion for yourself as yeah. a child. And how have you found like connecting to your inner child? Has it been emotional? How's it so been? I've only done it once. In the t I did it in terms of a um, hypnosis slash meditation. And I went back to a time in my life where I was harsh on myself. And I felt really happy, but it was really emotional at first. But then I, after I felt really happy. And now when I feel like I'm anxious, I'll just say, okay, it's okay you know, you're feeling anxious. It's okay that you do. It's not like, it's like, that's how I'm talking to myself after that one time. Mm. And it was really, it was really interesting actually, because normally I do it as if I'm in a therapy room and I'll say, this is why I'm feeling anxious. And 
I'll pretend I'm a therapist and I'll always find an answer. But this is a lot more comforting. And like you said, it brings out a lot more compassion. Mm. It's not so much problem solving or solutions. And I think these small things that we can learn about can really transform the way in which we start to speak to ourselves, which I think is very important. Mm. And I really like what you said about it not being about solutions or fixing things. Yeah. Therapy isn't really about solutions. It's about shifting. And it's about not, you know, you're not coming with, oh, I'm going to do abc and then i'm going to feel better it's it's actually changing your relationship with yourself which is a much more deep process and creating that dialogue with your inner child is such an important part of um of healing i think because you're seeing yourself you're, you know you have that critical voice why did i say that i'm such an idiot yeah everyone thinks this about me duh, 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 duh. and then you come in with your parent voice who's like wait but how am i feeling and where's my vulnerability and if i was a child right now what would i need and that almost drowns out the critical voice. And I think yes. that's a huge way that we can actually shift how we talk to ourselves, which is fundamental to healing and self-esteem. And um, in a way, part of healing your attachment style and developing something more secure is almost going back through those early years, but as if you had yourself there as a parent, the parent that you should have had who is responding to you and is always present. I love that. Because healing your inner child is actually very, very difficult at times because like you said, you don't remember a lot of stuff. So mm -hmm. what you've got to do is kind of go back into that place, uncover everything, maybe even ask your parent. But I don't know if you do this, but how how do people approach that conversation with their parents? Um, uniquely. I don't think there's one set way. I, you know, you, I actually, again, talk about this in the book, that you don't have to talk to your parents about the past in order to process it. Um, it can help because okay. um, some people want to have those conversations about things that have happened that they've never spoken about before. For some people, that can be really helpful and really healing to mm. actually finally talk about the elephant in the room that's been in their family for years. For other people, um, that's really explosive and that can be a very difficult thing to bring to your family if people aren't able to talk about it or think about it. Um, and, you know, to to move on from the past you don't have to do that work with your family you can just do it with a therapist and process without having to bring it into your family what's the most common thing that people struggle with in relationships when their inner child isn't healed um i think re repeating the past i think this is the most common thing people struggle with um in all in their lives without even realizing is that we repeat what we experienced if we don't process it um, so if you experience, you know, and if you experience a relationship, watching your parents doing something, for example, or the way they related to you, you are going to then repeat it because that's your model and your blueprint for how relationships are. Um, Freud talked about this. So it's called the repetition compulsion, which okay. I think is absolutely essential. Um, and it means that the, the trauma, the painful things that we've been through, we'll often repeat them as a way to try to gain mastery over them. So we try to heal by repeating, but we end up just repeating the pain over and over again so this is why people will choose partners for example who are um hurting them in the same way so if you go for someone emotionally unavailable who um doesn't want to engage with you emotionally or who is avoidant chances are you would have had a parent who wasn't able to engage with you emotionally and so you're attracted to the same kind of person hoping that this time things will work out differently this time you'll be able to change the situation by being good enough or um whatever and almost always what happens is instead of things changing, you just repeat the pain of the original wound over and over and over again. But that just doesn't make sense, does it? Because let, let's just put it into a silly context. If I hate a burger, 
why would I eat the burger again? Why would I order the burger again? It's a really good question. Right? I think that's why it's so difficult for people to understand why people repeat things because this is very stereotypical. A lot of the times, mother-in-laws who have been through a traumatic experience with their mother-in-law often don't change Mm. and impose those same restrictions and same problems on their daughter-in-laws. And the cycle never ends. Mm -hmm. And like you've just said, you attract what you've had. It doesn't make sense to me because I think if you've had something and you've hated it, why is it that you are doing it again? I think the way that I've come to understand this is through like homeostasis, which is the body is designed to always stay the same. So to keep our body temperature the same and keep... Um, blood flow the, the same and we have all these adaptations to make sure that everything is the same Okay, which means that I mean this is just a scientific perspective I'm sure there's others it means that we are always looking for what's familiar so oh that feels familiar that's the same that means that that's safe True. and actually what's really really scary is something different and I think people who are quite who have an insecure attachment can actually find that when they get into a relationship with someone secure that's different from what they've experienced, it's so triggering because it feels so different. It feels so new. And for the body, newness is unsafe. I was just going to say that because if you're in a toxic relationship and you get out and then you go to a relationship that's safe and secure, you feel that it's boring. Mm. And there's everyone talking around right now saying, go for the boring guy, go for the safe option. Because when you've been in a toxic relationship, you're at this high. Mm -hmm. And the difficulty is you're never going to get that high in a secure and safe relationship. You're probably going to get to here. But your low was here. And your low in the safe relationship is probably here. So you're never going to reach that high. And therefore, you sometimes feel when you move from a toxic relationship to a secure and safe relationship, I don't love them as much. Right. Because we mistake that high, that chemistry, that intensity for love. Yes. But it's not love. It's fear. Actually, it's dope. It's our adrenaline going up and down and up and down. And that we get addicted to that feeling. But it's not, it's not necessarily love. Love, I think, feels a bit more gentle and safe yes. and like stable over time. So how do we get out of that? How do we adapt ourselves? Because like you said, it is an addiction. Mm. It's so fun to be in a relationship with someone who loves you more than anything in the world. Because the next, well, it's not so fun, but I mean, like, it's the best feeling being in a relationship with someone who loves you so much when they hated you the day before. Mm. It's almost like getting getting a boost of like, I don't know how to describe it. Right, so I talk about this online, that inconsistency, so like, I hate you one day, I love you the next. It taps into the same brain regions as uh, slot machines, and that's why it can feel so addictive, because a slot machine works by being inconsistent. So you get reward, but only sometimes. So you're you're unable to predict the patterns, and that means you stay longer, because you're like, maybe I'll win this time, maybe I'll win this time. Oh, I won, rush of dopamine, and then you keep playing, waiting for the reward. So when reward in love is inconsistent, so sometimes they're amazing and you get the jackpot and other times they're ignoring us or horrible to us. We stay chasing the dopamine rush of the reward once again, which means it's more addictive than someone who's just present and good and kind all of the time. Oh my goodness. That's literally probably why people love toxic relationships and can never get out, but hate them as well at the same time. Yeah. And something I find is they're just so hard to leave. People find them so hard to leave and they're really afraid of what's on the other side. I don't, I think unconsciously they probably don't believe they deserve better or they can find better. And there's so much fear that means people stay because sometimes they're good. And I think that's a huge red flag of when someone says, oh, but when it's great, it's great. Yes. 
But when it's bad, it's really bad. Mm, I think the reason why it's so difficult to leave a toxic relationship is because you say no one's perfect mm. and you can never have it all. And when it's good, it's so fun and it's so amazing. And they deep down, they're a good person. When people say to me, deep down, they're a good person, I honestly think any person deep down is a good person. Anyone ever who's done something horrific has done that because of a reason or because they've mm. been through trauma or because something's happened. We can't just say every murderer is a good person because they were traumatized when they were younger. I mean, come on. No, and I think what trauma does is it means that you tolerate bad behavior because it's what you've known. It's that familiarity piece again that, mm. oh, well, my parents were a good person, but they also really hurt me and they also abused me or did certain things. And therefore you you have such a like a higher tolerance for bad behavior in relationships because you can see the good and you can see the love and yeah. that feels like enough and it means that you're actually unable to walk away because you've never experienced anything different what are the signs if you're in a toxic relationship that you found <sighs> i think it's really hard to sum it up into signs because uh what is toxic and yeah that would be different for each individual there's so many different ways that someone can um be hurting you but I guess that the signs really exist in the individual so if you're feeling like you're having to walk on eggshells with your partner if you're feeling like you've stopped talking to your friends or you're lying to your friends about the, what's happening in your relationship because you know that it sounds bad um if you're if you're feeling afraid of your partner um if you're feeling a lot of shame if you're feeling controlled um I think the behaviors of the partner would be different, but it's really, and, and really if your nervous system is constantly dysregulated in your relationship, mm. um, that would be a sign that, yeah, maybe have a look at what's happening. I think the best thing my therapist once said to me, which made me understand in one second that I was in the wrong relationship, was tell me why you love your partner. Mm. And I said, I just do. <laughs> and he said, tell me why you love him. I said, I don't know, you know, his family are really nice. In that moment, I just, I, I blurted it out. And he looked at me and he said, that's the first thing you're going to tell me. And I said, no, no, no. And then I listed maybe a couple of things, but it was hard for me mm. to quantify, for me to tell him. And now in my relationship, if you ask me to tell you why I love him, I would tell you exactly like in a second, it's because mm. of this, 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 and this. And I think that answer of I just do means that you don't know. No, but I just do. There is, there will, there would have, been a reason that you were with this person and it would have been unconscious yeah. and it would have likely been some sort of repetition from your past 100%. or and so I just do means that your unconscious is, is in the driver's seat of your choices and that means you're not actually aware and you're not making choices that are coming from your conscious kind of like healthy adult mind and I think that's where you talk about safety because mm. it logically it doesn't make sense does it when you say oh if you if I hate a burger why would you order the same burger but what does make sense is I know what this burger is going to taste like and I can't be bothered to try anything else on the menu because mm. I didn't really like this and I don't want to hate something even more so that that feeling of safety in a relationship is so important exactly and yeah and again in the book I, I talk about this because I think it's so important that our bodies our minds are not designed for happiness so it would really? make sense that we would always choose the burger that's the most delicious but actually our bodies are designed for staying alive and our uh, for, for whatever reason we think that we're going to be safer if we go with something familiar and I think that means that we don't always make choices that are the best for our happiness we have to really challenge ourselves and really be aware and make conscious changes to get something that is going to lead to our happiness 
this is a bit scary because let's say I'm a narcissist sitting at home mm. and I've grown up with a narcissist parent, but now I've become a narcissist. How do I know I'm a narcissist? Because it's never been discussed. I'm living with someone who is a narcissist. I'm now, I don't know, an adult and I'm repeating the same behavior. What's the first step? Well, first of all, you probably wouldn't be asking the question, am I a narcissist if you are a narcissist? I'm a narcissist um, the first step, I, I guess, is getting curious. I have five steps in my book of um, of how to start the healing process. Not that it's linear, but there are kind of five core elements. And the first thing is to just get curious. And that is the antidote to being critical of yourself and think, mm. oh, I'm going to end up a narcissist too. And I hate this part of me. And what if I end up like my parents? It's like, let's just neutralize and not judge and just be curious about how you are. How are you acting in a certain way in a relationship that you don't like? And if so, why? And where's that coming from? And actually just asking to kind of expand your awareness of yourself um, rather than coming in with all of this shame and all of these mm. fears, you know? Okay. And what's the second step? Um, the second step is understanding your past and where it's come from. So in getting curious, it's like, okay, what was my childhood like? And um, what was my relationships with my parents like? And what were their relationships like? And what did I learn implicitly and explicitly about the world and about people and about myself? And how is that showing up now? And I think the more that we can understand where our patterns are coming from and locate them in the past, the more we can think, okay, this is how I respond differently and this is how I can start to change them. And the third? The third is to feel, which for people who are intellectualizers like myself and probably like you and anyone who's interested in psychology and attachment styles, um, it's to feel, which is instead of just understanding, because we can have an intellectual understanding, like I pick partners who are avoidant because they are like my mum or my dad. That doesn't actually process anything that is just an intellectual understanding. But feeling is really to process, okay, what was it like to have a parent who was not emotionally there who wasn't mm. wasn't interested in your internal world who couldn't talk about feelings like what's the pain of that and this is a huge process in therapy is to really get in touch with the feelings of what it was like to be a child in your house the, the positives and the negatives um and to, to grieve for what we didn't get and to yeah. celebrate what we did get um and that's the part that I think people get stuck on because you can have the awareness but if you don't go into the depth of it um it doesn't actually lead to change um, and then step four is to act. So, okay, we've got all of this information, we're starting to process things, but what do we actually do? Um, and using this knowledge to show up differently, to really challenge how we respond, to, you know, notice that we're triggered, feel that trigger and locate it in the past, but then to respond differently to that trigger is also like a very important part um, of changing yourself. And that's where our conscious mind comes in and has to kind of take charge. Um, and then step five is to repeat. And this is anyone who's ever tried to change anything will know that you don't do it on the first go. Because um, really you're resetting your neural pathways. So you've got one way of being that's adaptation, an ad adaptation from your childhood that is like set. Um, and to create change, you have to then create a new neural pathway. But that is not going to be the dominant one to start with because this is like the well-trodden path. Mm. So it's like, if imagine it snowed and you're having to like retread that path so that this becomes the one that is the most walked down. And to do that, you have to repeat over and over and over again. Um, and this is why therapy can take a long time because you're going through cycles of repetitions. So you might start um, by talking about some of the sadness you experienced in your childhood and feeling really sad for your child self of things they went through. But then you might go 
and repeat and get in touch with anger. And that's a whole different process of getting angry. And then you might have compassion for yourself and for your parents and for other things. And this is why repetition and talking about things and having different memories is really important because it a opens up potential for different feelings and different mm. aspects of what you've been through um, but then it also reinforces the changes that you're making by going and trying new things over and over again is there such thing as a perfect childhood where someone doesn't have to go through these different steps to uncover and change um i don't think there's such a thing as perfect um there are definitely different levels of suffering in childhood um of course people with very secure healthy loving parents are going to ha- have to do less work than people who were terribly abused um but i do think that everyone is influenced by their childhood if we take the the labels of good and bad out of it everyone is their adult selves are determined by their childhood um and that means that we can all benefit from reflecting on how we became who we are even if it's not trauma big t trauma and negative things there are so many things that impact us that we wouldn't even consider um trauma such as um a sibling being born that's like a universal experience um if you're if you're a two-year-old and a sibling is born and takes all the attention that's going to be you know different different levels of different people but that's going to have an impact and that's worth reflecting on and thinking okay how has that um changed how i share things or experience envy or um connect with people you know there's so many ways that we can be impacted that aren't just i'm processing trauma right now this, this is so interesting because I think a lot of people might be listening and thinking, oh, if we're saying a sibling being born can actually have a big impact on us, I never thought about it that mm-hmm. way, but it doesn't make sense. Surely every single thing in our life can have an impact on us. And we just have no idea. And sometimes we're not conscious of it. Because I have no idea when my brother was born, how I felt or what I did. Mm. And my parents said I wasn't jealous. But I would say I'm actually quite jealous sometimes as, a, as an adult. Weirdly. Yeah, and we, we all can be jealous. And I yeah. think it's probably quite normal for kids to feel jealous of siblings or jealous of other things, you know, yeah. jealous of their parents having a relationship and um, that existing outside of them because suddenly they're not important. And that, that's not necessarily traumatic, but it's an experience that happens when you're young, so your brain's developing. So it's worth thinking about how that might be showing up now as an adult. And do you think you can change on your pathways? Do you think you can change who you are as a person? Because let's just take me, for example, I'm 30 years old surely it's very difficult for me to change completely how I feel about something that's been rewar- that's been going on in my brain for 30 years. I mean, I don't think I would be a good therapist if I didn't believe in change. Yeah. So I definitely think people can change. And I know my experience of therapy, I've done a lot of changing. I don't think you can ever completely... I mean, we can't change what's happened to us and we can't redo childhood. Mm. So there's a limit to change. Um, that doesn't mean that we can't have really different experiences and create a really different life for ourselves and change how we respond but we can't go back and um do childhood again which is when our brains were forming so um yeah i think we have to be cautious about um the limitations of change um but i think especially with attachment styles you i've seen lots of people and heard lots of stories of people who were really avoidant and now they're in a very secure happy relationship wow. so i think you have to have hope that um things can change I find it crazy that being a parent and having children is probably the most important thing on the planet. And yet there's no course on it. There's no guide. There's no manual. There's no, you have no instruction. It's just like, get on with it. You'll figure it out. So for the parents who are going to have children or people who are, you know, have gone through a very anxious or, you know, um, 
avoidant life with their parents and they're now raising children what can they do to make sure that they're giving their ch- their child i guess the best chance at being secure i think they sh- they can work on themselves i think that's the best thing that we can do for our children hmm. um to take the pressure off it's a huge it, it feels really scary to yeah. think everything i do is determining my child's attachment style so to kind of you know yeah. if you're coming in with love and you're coming in with reflection and compassion and trying to grow yourself you're probably doing a better job than most people um but also i think to do to really be doing the work because especially in those early years when your baby is young um that's going to be really triggering for you and it might bring up things from your early years and how you were as a child and bring up all these things that we're not conscious of. So I think um, the kindest thing we can do for our children is to um, have a space where we can focus on ourselves and Mm. grow and reflect. And what's the number one thing you would say from someone who's perhaps very anxious on how they can perhaps be a bit more secure? Um, Like a hack or a tip? I, I guess to be able to try to create space between your triggers and your response so even if it's five minutes before you rush into responding and going into that anxiety kind of um clinging type of behavior just give yourself five minutes to regulate and Mm. to try to think okay i'm safe and that's part of the inner child work of like this feels really scary but actually i'm safe and i will survive this and when we're coming from that place of being reassured and regulated and safe we can then respond in a way that is more in line with being secure with the rise of social media at the moment, I'm sure people who are anxiously attached are finding it much harder. I don't know if you've read uh, Modern Romance by Aziz Ansari. No, but I've heard it's great. So he has this whole section in there where he's talking around how difficult it is when you're getting ghosted. Or, for example, when you see those three dots when somebody's typing mm. and you get excited and then nothing's there. Mm-hmm. And that can really play on you, like what you're speaking about in terms of if you're actually attached. You're constantly checking when someone's online on WhatsApp. You're constantly looking for those three dots. You're constantly seeing typing. Mm. It makes you feel anxious. Mm-hmm. How, how do we regulate that? That's not within our control. No, it's not. And, and it also sets up um, this idea that we have to be in constant communication with our partner. Otherwise, they don't exist. Okay. Um, so I think this is called object constancy. It's being able to believe that someone is there even if we can't see them. And I think people with an anxious attachment really struggle with this. And modern, yeah, social media, modern yeah. communication really doesn't help. Um, I guess my biggest tip for that is to um, maybe communicate with the person that you're talking with and set out your needs of mm. communication in a relationship. Um and also try to understand where they're coming from. So if they need less communication than you, that's an incompatibility, but something that can be resolved by you coming to an understanding. So I think clarity is so helpful for people with anxiety, because if you're not sure about something, your anxious mind fills in all of the gaps of like, oh, they, they've stopped loving me. They're ghosting me. Um, they're not interested. They found someone else. Whereas if we say, OK, how much do you like to communicate oh I like to text once a day oh I like to text all day how can we find something in the middle and recognize that there's a reason that person's not replying rather than us guessing all of the reasons and catastrophizing I think that can really ease anxiety so maybe asking Mm. for clarity and like having conversations about expectations of communication with whoever you're in a relationship with can be helpful I just recorded a podcast with Michelle and she was talking about boundaries and she said something similar that when she's starting to date someone she'll say these are the hours of communication. If I'm working all day and I'm writing all day, I'm not going to respond to you. It doesn't mean I don't like you. It just means I'm just, that's my boundary at the moment. Mm-hmm. And I found that so interesting. And I said to her, doesn't that feel kind of rigid? And she said, well, how is somebody meant to know? 
You know, mm. we are told that you you should reply instantly. And now we have access to everyone all mm. the time. If somebody doesn't reply to you within an hour, you think they're ignoring you because everyone has their phone on them all the time. Yeah, um, Glennon Doyle talks about this. You know, she wrote Untamed and she, she hates her phone and she hates talking to people on her phone. And she says it's like a violation. It's, a, it's intrusive. I did not ask to be speaking to you right now. And now you have decided to text me and I have to reply to you. Otherwise, I'm rude. But I never wanted to talk to you and you didn't ask for consent that we're talking now. Um, but the expectation is, is that you, we all are on our phones and there's this immediacy and like we have to reply all of the time. Um, I do think there's wiggle room that you can just tell people, look, uh, I, I'm not going to reply immediately. It's nothing on you. Mm. And yeah, I do think the more we communicate, the less people take it personally when we don't reply. Yeah. And then there's just, we're, we're explaining, I'm not being rude here. I just, I'm not on my phone that much today. It's just overwhelming because if you're not on your phone for a couple of hours, sometimes you can get thousands of notifications. Mm. And recently, it's so funny, for so long, I couldn't deal with having notifications on my phone. I'd have to open it and I don't have read on WhatsApp. So sometimes I just ignore it now, which is really terrible. But even on Instagram, I find it so hard because I have to open all the messages because I don't like having that red thing mm. and now I've just had to be like let that red button be there it's okay I physically can't reply to everything all the time and I think it's small changes we need to make into our lifestyles to understand why we feel we need to be so accessible to everyone because mm. a lot of the time it's associated with guilt yeah even just then you said it's really terrible as if you're doing yeah. a bad thing by taking space for yourself and not replying immediately to every single person who messages you it's like we feel shame that we're a bad person and that people won't like us if we're not always accessible people pleasing is an absolute nightmare it really is please tell me two tips on how i can eradicate it from my life because i don't think i'm a people pleaser by the way and i definitely am <laughs> if you said to me are you a people pleaser i would say no not really because i stand up for my opinions and i don't mm. really care but I would say a lot of the time it's all within a remit and it's because I, don't, I am a people pleaser, which I think a lot of women are. Oh, yeah. And that's the expectation that we're always thinking yeah. about other people and we're being very nice and we're not allowed to be aggressive or assertive. Um, my biggest tip for people pleasing, people pleasing is about not being able to tolerate the discomfort of somebody else. So it's not really about them, it's us. We can't stand it if someone is upset or angry with us or if we think that they think that we're a bad person. So people-pleasing, setting boundaries, all of it is about being able to tolerate that saying, no, I'm not going to do that or actually that upset me. You're going to get a negative reaction from that person if so true. Not most most frequently. And it's tolerating that. of like We don't always have to make other people happy. And if someone's angry with us, that's okay. We can handle that. That is so true. Because a lot of the time we think people-pleasing is about the other person. It's just that you're not able to deal with someone else being mad at you. Exactly. So it's actually that resilience, building that in yourself. And what do you think the key takeaway from your book is about relationships? Because a lot of people are struggling right now. Mm -hmm. They're struggling to be in a relationship. They're struggling to stay in a relationship. And they're struggling to leave a relationship. Mm -hmm. So I guess from all those three things, what can we do? I think... And this is like the essence of my book is just gaining awareness of understanding why we're in bad relationships, why we're struggling to leave. There's always a reason and there's always an unconscious force often coming from our childhood that is stopping us from changing. And the more we can become aware of what that is and why it's there and why we're resisting change, the more we're able to then show up differently in relationships or make you know, choose different partners that are better for us. So I think self-awareness and just staying curious as to what's going on before we react mm. um, is really important for changing. 
I love that. Thank you so much. This has been so enlightening for me to understand all about attachment and how much of our childhood plays such a big role in our life. And I'm sure people at home are going to feel the same too. So thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Thank you.